0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to.
1: This week, we're asking why are some hospitals still using COVID regulations to ban visitors?
0: As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us on Medical Minefield, tweet us using the hashtag Medical Minefield. Now, Eve, I, I have to say I was quite surprised that this was still going on. I feel like we were reporting on loony health organisations, care homes, etc., adhering to these draconian COVID rules and, uh, you know, when lockdowns were being eased and such like. But, you know, I mean, uh, this was ages ago, and, mm. and but it's still going on. There are is, there is still hospitals saying that people can't come in and visit... Uh, relatives who are inpatients because Covid.
1: I was aware aware of this in the care home situation back in February because we wrote a piece about people who were living in care homes who were told that their loved ones couldn't come and visit them and they were terribly distressed. But I was under the impression that hospitals were kind of a step ahead of that and that care homes were kind of ultra restrictive because the care home managers were worried about insurance and things like that.
0: But the problem's still so ongoing that the health secretary has had to step in and order all hospitals to fall into line and allow visitors, because there's there's no mandate for this as far as COVID goes right now. There are no restrictions Mm. that they could be saying they need to follow. And yet it is going on.
1: From our reports, it seems to be what's happening is that patients are coming in, either contracting COVID in hospital or coming in having tested positive for COVID. And then for some reason, there's this weird shutdown. And then they're not allowed to see any of their loved ones because they have COVID.
0: That's understandable, but that's not always the case. And, you know, funnily enough, we were talking in the office about this earlier. And it turns out that our art director, Gordon Smith, is in this situation right now with his dad. Gordon is with us right now. So, uh, yeah, sorry to hear that this is this is something that's affecting your family.
2: Oh, no, no, thanks. Thanks for saying that.
0: So uh, take us through it. What, what happened? Your dad's had a stroke, is that right?
2: Yeah, so he had a stroke about four months ago and went into the the ICU. He was on a ward with about another four beds, and back then... You were only allowed one person in for one hour a day because the logic being that everybody on the ward had to have somebody have time for so somebody they, to visit them. Everybody, they staggered it. everybody got slot. But yeah. mm-hmm. since then, he's moved into a different hospital and he's in a room on his own. But they still have this rule that you can only have a visitor for one hour a day, which you know just doesn't feel like it makes a lot of sense. Do they
1: say it's anything to do with COVID?
2: I, I haven't heard any anything specifically being said about that, but I, I, I just assume. That it is, but, you know, and then he did actually contract COVID when, when he was in there and then it, it was just like banned from having anybody see him for like two weeks.
0: For two weeks? Yeah. But outside of that, he's been pretty much on his own the whole time. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. How has the stroke affected him? Is, is he able to do things for himself? Is he quite reliant on other people? Well,
2: you know, he's in rehabilitation, but it's, it's taking a long time and he needs help because he still can't move down one side.
0: And what about your mum? Is she coping with the separation?
2: No, no. It's a, you know, it's just difficult for everyone. So I mean, I think as a family, we found it hard that we couldn't just all be there. You know, mm. where when he first went in, and that that was kind of like the hardest bit. Rather than now that, that he was in there, and while he was still having the stroke,
0: and you know, he was really confused, and there was nobody mm. there. God, it's really worrying to mm. think of someone on their own in that situation where you, you know, you want to just go to them, don't mm. you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I think it'd be really hard for anyone. Mm.
0: Have you raised it with the doctors? Have you said, can we sort this out? You know, the, I mean, the frustrating thing is that nowhere in life are there COVID restrictions, you know, apart from seemingly this.
2: Yeah. Because I'm not, you know, because it's not near here where, where it's happening. Yeah, yeah. So my mum's... My spoken to them, but we you know, it's just I just get the feeling that there's kind of like it's out of our hands. You know, this is like a decision that's been
0: made higher up. And, and I guess there's that kind of feeling you don't want to make too much of a fuss when no. you're relying on a group of people to look after mm-hmm. someone so much. You know when they're the, in
1: such a vulnerable state,
0: you don't want to be the problem mm. the problem family, do you? No, absolutely. Well, look. Thanks very much for for explaining that to us, and I hope it uh, sorts itself out. No, no. Thanks. I have to say, I have some personal experience of this as well. My dad was in hospital back in uh, March last year. So this was pre him having the vaccine. They discovered a brain tumour, one of these benign ones. So it was the, the, the good kind, I guess, if you can have a good kind of yeah. brain tumour. And so he was told he couldn't have the vaccine until six or something weeks after they'd operated. His, his, oh, right. his operation date was in March. So he was in hospital and... No one could visit him back then because mm. it really was kind of middle of the whole pandemic mm. restrictions so the worst
1: time to be in hospital
0: yeah it was, it was the big yeah. worry for mm. us was actually that he was in hospital mm. uh, because as we know being in hospital mm. raised your risk of getting covid you know uh, it was something that we reported on many many people who died in the first wave of covid caught it while in hospital for something else mm. um, and obviously he was unvaccinated during this peak time but but my point is, you know, it was it was it was understandable. And th- one good thing is it is it made him learn how to do WhatsApp, <sighs> which he'd refused, do. Skill, yeah. he'd refused to do. He'd refused to. I don't want to be contactable all the time. It's what he said to me. But it made him do WhatsApp. And, it, and he started sending selfies mm. and he would obviously lost a hell of a lot of blood during the operation to open his head and take this brain tumor out and and he was he was very pale and eventually I showed some of the pictures to my mum who is also a doctor and they aren't together they don't see each other but she then said he's anemic yeah. you know he must have lost a lot of blood during surgery and it, he he'd been in hospital for weeks yeah. and complaining of being exhausted and tired and still couldn't get out of bed And my mum had taken one look at this picture and said, he doesn't look right. He's very pale. His lips are, you know, the wrong colour, etc. He's clearly got anemia. I relayed this to my dad, who then told his medical team, who then tested his blood hemoglobin, which was 10. Wow. um, And he was put on iron treatment, etc. But it had been missed Mm. because no one had been able to really look at him. No one who knew him Mm. had been able to look at him. And I think when we talk about hospital visitors now, it's not simply someone saying hello Mm. and cheering you up. You know, part of your healthcare is going to be done by your relatives if you're lucky enough to have them. People who don't have relatives to visit them in hospital often starve to death, we know. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that go into hospital and die of malnutrition. It's the people who don't have visitors. So visiting isn't simply a luxury. It isn't simply something for mental well-being or to pass the time. Being able to get in there... It's really important. And by denying people that, I think that hospitals are shooting themselves in the foot at the very least. I also
1: think that there's something to be said about these very strict rules that you're putting upon patients. It does set up this kind of us and them, you know, men in white coats type situation. And I, and I think that that's not very good for patient morale because you're i think you're less likely to go to a doctor and ask for things and ask for help if you feel like they're putting restrictions on you if you say really really Hmm. want to see somebody and you can't see them
0: oh absolutely
1: I was in um, a mental health hospital six years ago, uh, seven years ago, which I've spoken about quite a few times for anorexia. And the rules on visiting, for very important reasons, sometimes there's complications with the people that visit in terms of making the mental health problem worse. Some people have complicated relationships with their families. But in my case, that wasn't the case. My family were very important to my recovery. But the visits were very restricted. We could have one visit a day and it had to be from one person and they could only visit for 45 minutes and then they had to go home for half an hour and then come back for another half an hour. So it was a really strange setup and my boyfriend at the time, now husband, used to come for 45 minutes and then go off and get a kebab up the road and then come back for the other half an hour. Um, But I remember feeling really constricted and it did set up this kind of battle situation you wanted to trust the people who were there you know in charge of caring for you and instead yeah. you were annoyed at them and felt like you were being denied something that was a fundamental human right of course you need the people that you love to be there to motivate you to get better
0: reportedly it's it's something of a postcode lottery so in some areas of the UK things are happening completely normally and then there are these pockets where things are very abnormal still and have not recovered since the pandemic And it's affecting everyone in in different ways. And, and, you know, it must not be doing favours for the medical teams, for the nurses, for the patients, for anyone. So, you know, I mean, the sooner they can get this resolved, the better, I'd say.
1: Well, now we're going to speak to somebody who had this problem very recently. On the line now is Sarah Knox, whose husband, Roy, spent two weeks alone in hospital when he was admitted in April due to heart failure complications. How did you feel when you were told that you weren't allowed to visit your husband in hospital?
3: I was really quite surprised because on the website it indicated that you could. And I was quite upset, really, that I couldn't go and see him. Mm. And what were you told? Were you told it was because of COVID? Yes, I was told because he tested positive for COVID when he went into hospital, that he was admitted to a COVID board and there was absolutely no visiting.
1: And and so did you think, oh, OK, that's fair enough then because, I, you know, I don't want to get COVID?
3: Well, I'd already had COVID about two weeks before, so I thought that it would be fine for me to visit him, particularly if I wore a mask and a load, you know, hygiene mm. protocols. But it wasn't even a, an option. And
1: how was he? How did he get on? Did he cope with the, the kind of loneliness well or, or did he find that quite difficult?
3: He found it really difficult because he developed very severe delirium, which meant that he was very confused all the time. He didn't know where he was. He would ring me in distress, thinking that he was in India, in the mountains, waiting for a train, oh which was quite bizarre. And it, it wasn't though so the nurses were seemed to be aware because I would ring them then to say, "Could you go and check on him because he seems very distressed?" And sometimes they'd say to me, well, "Oh, he's fine. He's fine this morning." And I had to say, "I have to tell you that he's not." and insist that they go and check on him.
0: Because, of course, you're the one that's going to know whether or not he's fine. And and this is something we were talking about just earlier before you came on the line, Sarah, that with the best will in the world, nurses who are rushed off their feet and, uh, you know, junior doctors and stuff are doing ward rounds. They're going to miss the small details that show that someone isn't fine. You know, and that's the big worry as a relative, isn't it?
3: It is. And also because he has been in hospital in the past where he had delirium. Soon as soon as he went in, I informed them that he was prone to delirium. And in the past, he's had the strangest beliefs and become very frightened. Mm. So I did brief them on that and that we actually have lasting powers of attorney for each other where I'm his designated attorney for health matters. So I thought that they would include me more in his care. Mm. Mm. But they didn't? They didn't, no. And and were you told
1: that part of that was because he had COVID, so they had to sort of, I don't know, put him in a a special ward and and couldn't risk anything to do with other people?
3: Yes, I was told that he was on a COVID ward Mm. and that he would have to be isolated for 10 days. Mm. And then the ward that he was initially on, became a non-COVID ward. So he had to move off that onto another designated COVID ward for the remaining days of his isolation. And then I asked about when he would be able to come off the COVID ward and they said he would be stepped down 10 days after he'd tested positive, which he was And he was put on what was meant to be a non-COVID ward. But when I rang them the next day to arrange to go and see him, I was told that a patient had tested positive on that ward. So it had then been designated a COVID ward. So there was no visiting.
0: Has it led to any difficult conversations with the medical team? Have you ended up having arguments with anyone?
3: I... I have to say the doctors were very good. They rang me and they were fully informed or well informed about Roy's condition. And I actually, they asked me to email a copy of the Lasting Power of Attorney so that they had that on file. I did have a couple of conversations with nurses that were very stressful because one particular nurse didn't listen to me at all about how Roy was and was very dismissive and at that time Mm. i was talking to her roy had rung me and he was very distressed he thought he was at the airport so i said i'll i'll ring the nurses ask someone to check you and whilst i was doing that roy's friends were trying to get hold of me and texting me to say that he was ringing them and saying that he was at the airport and had he managed to get out of the hospital. Oh, blimey. So that was, Gosh. yeah, that was very difficult.
0: And how are things now?
3: Well, he's home now. Ah. Um, he's been home for two or three weeks. And how's he doing now, Sarah? He's fine, yes. I mean, he, he still has health problems, which he will always have. But um, I was worried that after two weeks, where he was so confused, that, that he may never recover or that uh, it would take a long time. And in fact, once he got home in a familiar environment, mm. he, he recovered very quickly, I'd say within three days.
1: Mm. Well, that says it all, really, doesn't it? Sarah, thank mm. you so much for spending the time chatting to us today.
3: Thank you.
0: Now, post-operative de- delirium and, and hospital-based delirium mm. is something that we've written about. It fascinates me, mm, me too. Uh, that this is uh, it's a recognised phenomenon. So for those that don't know what this is, it's a phenomenon in which people coming round from operations enter this kind of delirious, almost psychotic state where they don't know where they are, they don't know who they are, what's going on, and they can do all kinds of bizarre things like try and run out of the hospital. It reminds me of a a case that was extreme in a a Beverly Hills plastic surgery clinic, a British woman named Sandra Oriel, And I I believe she was a wife of a wealthy art dealer or something like that. She'd had Mm. a facelift. And in this clinic, they didn't allow visitors or her husband had not been allowed to visit. And she had come around for her operation and mysteriously decided to take herself upstairs to the roof of the clinic and throw herself off. <gasps> And she died.
2: Oh my goodness!
0: And it it, it was discovered wow. afterwards by looking at the notes and the observations of the nurses who were completely ill-equipped to dealing with these problems mm. uh, that she was suffering from post-operative delirium. It was decided, I believe, that that was God. the the cause or a contributing factor to her. Suicide, which would never have happened otherwise. She was completely fine. That's a facelift
1: gone terribly, terribly wrong. <laughs>
0: no, I mean, awful, awful mm. case. But it goes to show that it's, A, a very serious condition, and, B... The big risk factor for that is not having familiar people around mm-hmm. you, that if you wake up and, you know, you don't see a thing that you know, you could well think you're at the airport or, you know, God knows what and and do yourself all kinds of mischief.
1: Well, it was telling that once um, Roy got home that his mental state vastly improved because he was in familiar surroundings and around his family, which he had been denied for two weeks.
0: Well, Exactly, exactly. And next on the line, you have someone who can give us some insight into how widespread this problem is.
1: Yes, on the line is Julia Jones, who is the co-founder of John's Campaign, an organisation that fights for visitors' rights to see their loved ones. Julia, thank you so much for spending the time talking to us today. The issue of people not being allowed to visit their loved ones in hospital, this is something that you've known about for a while. Is it something that you're still hearing is happening a lot? If you'd asked me that
4: last week, Eve, I would have told you every single day I'm getting a request or, or a, a desperate relative or somebody who simply can't understand you know, why they were allowed in last week and not allowed in this week. And sometimes, you know, some of the stories are absolutely horrendous because the damage that can be done to vulnerable people if they're in a hospital environment and cut off for the people they rely on and love is, is appalling. I mean, it, it seems to have, I mean, I haven't had one today so far. Um, but I had one yesterday. And it's it's not right, is it, that, that something, a voluntary campaign like John's campaign, should be picking up the pieces when there should be you know, a proper NHS-wide understood system that, that vulnerable people need carers.
0: Julia, am I right in thinking that these people are being told COVID restrictions, pandemic restrictions are the reason that they can't visit their loved ones in hospital?
4: Sometimes uh, patients are being moved almost randomly onto a COVID-positive ward and they say, oh, you can't come in here, it's a COVID-positive ward. And you say, well, hang on, you know, my mum's not COVID-positive, uh, but she might have been in touch with somebody who might be, you know, really silly stuff, Barney.
0: Mm. And I, I remember when we first spoke uh, way back when we were talking about <laughs> the restrictions on care homes, yep. uh, the, the big problem was that uh, there wasn't a top-down, hard-and-fast bit of guidance saying, you know, you must allow one good visitor to come in and help with care, etc. So some care homes were interpreting various bits of guidance and coming up with their own rules. Do you feel that that's what's going on here? Is it some trusts or some individual hospitals? I think hospitals? it's
4: going on throughout the health and care system. Mm. I, I think it's an absolute shambles. And, and um, I, I don't know whether you know, but there's 60 MPs now who have signed a letter to the Secretary of State Saying that that there should be a right um, for people throughout the health and uh, social care system to have a supporter when they need one, you know, just a right attached to that person. So it's no good saying, well, you can have this if you're in Newcastle Hospital, but you can't have it if you're in Gateshead Hospital. Now, mm-hmm. those are just random examples mm-hmm. because actually, I had a particular irritation some months ago when. If you were on a stroke ward in Newcastle, you could be supported, whereas if you were in Gateshead, you couldn't. But I'm sure that Gateshead has put that right now because basically they're a very good trust. But just what's so disappointing with the hospitals is that before the pandemic, all of them, and I mean all of them, all the acute trusts across England, and most of Scotland and all of Wales, had signed up to John's campaign and said, yep, we will welcome carers. And somehow, we're back to the old negativity, we're back to the old restrictions, which is so disheartening. But I think I think what it clarifies is, is that this is something that should be attached to a person because you can be in a care home one minute, but then you fall you break your hip, you're in no. hospital the next minute. Now, you can't keep having sets of different arrangements for all these different places because the person at the center of need, is still the same person. And if they're being whizzed through the system in this bewildering way, they need the the emotional support of somebody who knows and loves them. And often
1: you need someone to advocate for you as well, don't you? Yes.
4: And as we all know, that everybody says about, oh, well, record keeping is all all joined up and it's on computers. That is just so not true and so in a very practical and safeguarding sense you need somebody who knows you and they know that you're allergic to penicillin or you don't get on with aspirin or you can't tolerate milk whatever it might be you need somebody with long-term in-depth person-centered knowledge you
0: know with with when someone's in an acutely ill situation you need someone to be able to say they're still not right
4: exactly and actually Although our campaign, you know, started as a dementia campaign, it becomes more and more obvious to me that any of us could need this. I mean, I could you know, have, a, have a stroke, you know, I'm 68, I could have a stroke tonight, although today I feel that I could advocate by myself. By tomorrow, I couldn't. Or, or what about people who have just had an emotionally tough blow? You know, like you've been told, you've got cancer or, or or you're having to go through cancer treatment you need that person-centred support to give you the will to survive. Mm.
1: This this always makes me think of uh, my great auntie who was um, incredibly frail and had the early stages of dementia and was completely confused. And I remember going to see her in hospital and she had been alone for two days. No one had gone to see her and she just looked completely bewildered. And I always yes. think about people like that who can't really communicate or, you know, maybe try to communicate but fail to communicate their needs
4: properly. Mm. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's why we started a dementia campaign, because it's so obvious that for somebody with dementia that the structure of their familiar surroundings and their familiar people and, you know, just plates and mugs that they know are such vital support to the, the failing brain. And so if you're taken away from all those things, okay, so you can't have, you know, your familiar surroundings, but you could have your familiar people.
0: Julia, could you give us some uh, just a flavour of some of the stories that you're hearing?
4: Oh, Barney. Well, I mean, there's, a, there's an awful one on our website at the moment, um, and this comes from the mental health system, and it's from a sister who's actually a former nurse, and her brother was known to be depressed and suicidal. So it comes from last year, but it's a it's a horrible example, and he said he couldn't trust himself to be left alone mm. and, and they said no, no, no with COVID and so you know his family were not able to support him and then he was discharged from hospital without anybody being told and you know I don't have to tell you the end of the story God, that's I mean, awful that, That's the truth but that's a stark example of what happens to people in less obvious ways that if you're somebody you know who's living with a degree of confusion in your own home but maybe you haven't got a formal assessment of dementia but then suddenly let's say you have a fall you're taken into hospital you're in pain you're you're in terrible danger of delirium and the one thing that could possibly keep you on the on the steady if you like is the support of somebody who has time to sit with you hold your hand offer you lots of little drinks of water explain to you that that stuff on that odd looking <laughs> tray is actually food and mm. help you eat it mm. You know, and, and if you're somebody with a cognitive impairment, it doesn't have to be dementia but if you start to go downhill, if you experience delirium, you're not going to recover You know, and dementia is a terminal illness you can either slow it up or you can speed it up so in a way by rejecting the support of familiar carers in hospital, in a way, you're doing the same as denying a depressed young man the company of his sister, you know, and okay, so he takes his life into his own hands. But an illness like dementia, or or many other of the cognitive impaired illnesses, once you start to go downhill, you haven't got the resilience of a younger person, perhaps, to get back again.
0: Well look, Julia, I really hope we see a day very soon. I feel like we've been talking about these things for for so long now. I <laughs> well, hope I'm there's a day that we don't.
4: <laughs> I looked it to up for the day <laughs> since twenty fourteen and we thought we'd got there. And I don't know why we've gone back into this negative mindset. Yeah. But let's all just join together and, and say that people wherever they are, if they need a personal carer, that carer should be welcomed Because it's going to make the outcomes better. It's good for everybody.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Julia, for finding time to talk to us.
4: No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: According to Mail on Sunday investigation, at the beginning of May, nine NHS trusts were banning visitors due to COVID regulations. I'm not sure what the situation is now, but by the sounds of it, from what Julia says, you know, things aren't improving in some areas, obviously.
1: Mm, The same investigation also found that nearly half of all trusts were falling short of NHS England's guidance for minimum visiting policies. So there's clearly something going on.
0: To play devil's advocate, hospital-acquired COVID and the spread of COVID in hospitals has been a real problem. But it would seem like the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction if you are in a situation where you are completely blanket banning or or coming up with random rules where you move people between wards and it's endless, mm. endless obstacles.
1: I was thinking about this as well because when we revealed the extent of hospital acquired COVID. That was at the height of the pandemic when there were no visits allowed and it wasn't anyone else necessarily coming into the hospital, visitors that was well, said to be the problem. Exactly.
0: Interesting that you bring that up because we were the first newspaper who stuck our heads above the parapet during all of the worship, the NHS, clap, clap. And the, the anecdotes that we were being told was it was Obviously inadvertently, but it was the staff that were primarily the ones going from patient to patient, and we um, know
1: that hospital-acquired infections, you know, be it
0: MRSA, MRSA the
1: same. you know, and lots of patients get sepsis. We know that that's a problem in hospital in general. And I don't know of any reports that have specifically linked that to visitors or people coming into the hospital.
0: You know, as you say, I'm as thorny as it is an issue, it's to do with the staff.
1: Mm, so perhaps these hospitals are looking at the wrong targets.
0: That's all we've got time for this week. If you want to know about this and a whole lot more in the world of health, then read this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to all of our podcasts, present and past. You can also contact us on Twitter using the hashtag MedicalMinefield and we'll be back with another subject on Medical MedicalMinefield next week.
1: See you then. Goodbye.